0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next edition of the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Rivella. I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. And Tyler, we have a great show today. We are going to be talking with Doug Meyer, the senior- Maryland scientist. Thank you. For the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, Doug Myers from uh, up in the Northeast. How are you doing today, Doug? I'm
1: great today, Peter. How are you? Well, Doug, uh, we really look forward to learning more about the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and the work that you are doing on what is certainly one of the most interesting bay systems on the American shoreline. Uh, But before we get into the meat of the interview, Doug, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. And as always on the American Shoreline
0: Podcast Network, we want to thank coastal engineering consultants from Naples, Florida. That firm led by our good friend Michael Poff in naples find michael and his firm at coastalengineering.com and of course
1: uh we need to thank our good friend uh friends at dune doctors the uh outstanding dune restoration and native vegetation consulting firm uh they work all along the gulf coast so if you are in need of vegetating your dune system building your dune system uh, give them a call. Go to www.doondoctors.com.
0: And uh, finally, Bill Worsham at LJA Engineering, the head of the Coastal Division, LJA Engineering with 28 offices around the southern United States. Superb firm. We've done a lot of work with them back in the old days find Bill Worsham and his team at LJA.com. You know,
1: Doug, uh, for anyone that's done any work or uh, followed the American shoreline, really in any way, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation means something. And I was just telling Peter before the interview, you know, I would love to learn more about the history of the organization. Uh, what, how, how did the Chesapeake Bay orga- uh, Organization Foundation come to be? Uh, what's the background there?
2: Yeah, about 50... 50- Two years ago, there were some uh, well-heeled sailors who would leave out of Baltimore Harbor and sail out across the bay. Then they get really upset about all the garbage they'd see and floating dead fish and smells and things like that. Uh, And they decided to put their money together and do something about it. They uh, created the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, which is a very lean and mean organization, started to advocate for cleaner water and, uh, started the whole thing mostly with a education program, realizing that the, uh, next generation is going to need to be more up to speed on how the bay works, how to connect with the bay and get, uh, you know, serious about cleaning it up.
1: 52 years. Uh, that bay has changed quite a bit in that period of time. Uh, obviously there's been uh, just a tremendous population boom in the, in the general area. And I imagine uh, the organization has had to adapt to those changes. Would you, would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, we've gone from about 14 million to 18 million people. uh, And that means uh, we've added a lot of hard landscape to the, the watershed. We've even done some, changes in the way we interact with the landscape we have a lot more green space development Uh, our houses got bigger Uh, we started driving more miles to work all of that has uh, increased the pollution footprint on a per capita basis
0: well doug and the chesapeake bay foundation one of the leading uh, coastal advocacy organizations in the united states Uh, there are several all around the shoreline of uh, of america uh, Tell us about your role with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation.
2: So my role is as the Maryland Senior Scientist. I'm the uh, Chief Scientist for the Maryland office. We have an office in uh, Pennsylvania, one in Virginia as well that kind of mirrors what we do here in Maryland. And we try to put together teams of folks to analyze all the existing policies, uh, look at the scientific underpinnings of those policies or the lack thereof, and then try to engage with the state legislature and the local governments uh, and even the federal government when we need to to improve those policies. So it might be a little bit of poking around in the bay and learning things. It might be doing some restoration projects that we can learn from. Uh, and then a lot of times it's reviewing a lot of scientific literature keeping up with studies and then uh, using what we learn to uh, Advocate for better positions better policies got
0: it And It's always that combination of science and policy where you can't escape one when you got to have one and the other um, the Chesapeake Bay is uh, It is influenced by a large area of the continental United States Could you explain to our listeners a little bit what the drainage is and wh- who are the principal state players uh, in the Chesapeake Bay and uh, its health, I guess.
2: Sure. Uh, the bay covers a 64,000 square mile watershed, includes uh, portions of New York, big chunks of Pennsylvania, a uh, little bit of Delaware, almost the entire state of Maryland, the entire District of Columbia, uh, Virginia, uh, most of Virginia, and a little bit of West Virginia all of those uh, states programs um, fall under the clean water act and they all have to meet water quality standards. 93 or 93 segments of the bay uh, that are have not been meeting their water quality standards since the beginning of the clean water act and so this federal state cooperative cleanup process is really being set up to be able to address that. Uh, Not just having the feds through EPA come down and say, you all need to clean up your water, but really to get into the state programs where uh, a lot of the Clean Water Act is deferred to state regulatory programs and and, uh, establish goals and reduction quotas for nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment across all those states in the district.
0: Well, that has got to be the big challenge. And like a lot of areas around the American shoreline, The source of the problem is not necessarily immediately adjacent to the water. Uh, And here you are in an area that covers 64,000 square miles. I think you listed off about 10 states. Uh, The management challenge to keep the Chesapeake Bay healthy, to restore it, has got to be a massive governmental jurisdictional, you know, political policy problem. But before we dive into all of that, tell us about the physical condition of the bay. How is, what's the status and what are the biggest issues that you guys think about every day when you go to work?
2: Sure. The current status of the bay is what we would call improving, um, but still dangerously out of balance. We actually have a report card. Uh, you can look it up at our website uh, to see how the bay tracks over the years. We have a number of indicators that we look at on a annual or biannual basis uh, so that we can kind of put everything on the same measuring stick. A lot of that is tied to the dissolved oxygen uh, criteria, and I like to talk about that as well if the fish can't breathe. Big problems. We don't want to uh, don't want to dismiss things like toxic chemicals or uh, PCBs or something like that. Those occur in some hot spot areas from kind of a legacy industrial past. But if you have large sections of the bay with zero dissolved oxygen, that's a pretty serious and acute problem. So the reduction of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment um, have been determined scientifically to have the biggest uh, impacts on that that's where the focus is and so epa working with the states uh, put the science to uh, basically say that we need to get down to 179 million pounds of nitrogen 12.2 million pounds of phosphorus and 6.45 billion uh, pounds of total suspended solids solids until we meet those uh, criteria the bay will not be able to absorb those nutrients and be able to uh, Have a functioning uh, food web without uh, creating low dissolved oxygen problems.
0: Wow! So there's a lot of water chemistry in that that rendition and statement you just gave. But let's help our listeners out there uh, a little bit. Um, So we've got phosphorus, we've got nitrogen inputs into the system. These are fertilizers and things that help stuff grow uh, from the uplands and stormwater runoff. Uh, When these uh, when these uh, chemicals reach the Uh, or nutrients reach the bay. Walk us through a little bit of how that ends up reducing dissolved oxygen levels in the bay.
2: Right. So uh, both of those nutrients are pretty necessary for life to occur. Both plant life and animal life uh, uses those uh, nutrients. Uh, They're kind of in excess. And what happens is they're running off the landscape and um, going into uh, first freshwater and then uh, marine water is they're fueling phytoplankton blooms those little microscopic algae that turn the water kind of a pea soup green Well in normal conditions when things are in balance You would have zooplankton the little animals that would go around and graze them down and eventually clear them out of the water but these uh, Microscopic plants only have about a two-week lifespan and so if they're not Consumed in that two weeks, uh, then they'll just die and go to the bottom as they go to the bottom uh, they will um, basically absorb the uh, dissolved oxygen in the water as uh, bacteria uh, decompose them. And that's what's uh, creating these low dissolved oxygen areas, mostly in deep water. And that gets uh, kind of exacerbated by, especially in the summertime, you'll have layers established in the water where you have kind of warmer water at the surface mm-hmm. and colder water at the bottom. They don't mix very well.
0: Thermoclines, and so bottom- they
2: call it. Uh, waters with the falling dead phytoplankton continue to get uh, lower and lower in dissolved oxygen.
0: Is it lethal if the dissolved oxygen gets too low? And what level of dissolved oxygen is what you would expect and want? And what are you, what kind of measurements do you find in these, uh, these more affected parts of the Chesapeake Bay?
2: Right. So that varies by species. Uh, certain species like crabs and oysters can handle one or two milligrams per liter dissolved oxygen. But you get up to the higher order of predators, things like striped bass, uh, need at least five milligrams per liter dissolved oxygen. You get some of the sensitive species like uh, Atlantic sturgeon, uh, then you need six to eight uh, milligrams per liter. So the more sensitive the species, the more oxygen they need. And what happens is these kind of large areas of the deeper parts of the bay just slowly sink into uh, lower dissolved oxygen as the summer progresses. Most of the loading is coming from the spring uh, snowmelt high in the watershed and spring storms bringing a lot of those loads of nutrients in uh, early in the year then as the light increases as you get into spring and early summer um, you have all these great conditions for the phytoplankton to bloom uh, to grow very quickly and and increase their populations and that uh, as that crash happens uh, following that that spring bloom uh, you have the depressed uh, dissolved oxygen. what happens is a lot of the fish that can't handle those low oxygen levels will come up to the surface um, but then the surface waters are actually pretty warm and that's not great for them either. So they get squeezed into this kind of mid uh, depth of the bay um, and it's pretty stressful. Some of the diseases that are known to happen with some of the bay fish uh, get exacerbated during these high stress uh, high, temperature and low dissolved oxygen conditions
1: so doug i'm i'm curious here uh obviously the dissolved oxygen level is extremely important to the health of the bay uh how long have scientists uh, been studying that like you, you characterized the bay earlier as improving what is the trend what were the levels you know 10 years ago 20 years ago and where are we today
2: right so it's not it's not as linear as i would like it to be um it's one of those things that i learned about this when i was in high school uh, growing up in the watershed in lancaster county pennsylvania where a lot of the agricultural nutrients coming are coming from uh and these uh, levels were zero uh, there was zero dissolved oxygen in the bay for quite a number of years, I would say decades, and we're getting to the point now that uh, during our um, our worst conditions uh, in the midsummer, that we're getting maybe 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per liter dissolved oxygen, which is an massive, a massive, a it's a massive improvement. There's a reason for that. Phosphorus in particular uh, goes through some really weird chemistry changes as the dissolved oxygen goes down, uh, and the phosphorus molecule can be recycled many times, 10 to 12 times in solution, um, when it's uh, part of that phytoplankton cell that dies. And so even having a little bit of dissolved oxygen on the bottom, 0.2 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per liter uh, kind of sequesters that phosphorus into the sediment and so we've reached that endpoint uh just a few years ago uh, according to scientists at university of maryland And we're starting to sequester the excess phosphorus uh, so that that's one of those thresholds that were reached that uh gives us a lot of hope. And and so now we're able to run the water quality models and take a look at um, the future and see uh, segment by segment, those 92 segments beginning to meet water quality criteria for dissolved oxygen. Uh, There's one segment that's going to be persistent, um, and that's the the deepest part of the bay, uh, just offshore of Annapolis here, goes down to about 110 feet. um, And so that part of the bay uh, will take the longest to clean up, not just because of its depth, but it's the recipient of most of the upstate um, New York and upstate Pennsylvania loads uh, coming through the Susquehanna River.
0: Man, that's a great summary, Doug. And I can see why you're the senior scientist for the uh, Maryland office (laughs) at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, uh, because understanding that that science is so critical to trying to figure out what to do about it. And uh, I want to turn our attention Uh, away from the general issue of the water and how the water quality is doing. What about the critters in the bay? What's the status of the populations these days? Uh, What's on the top of the list in terms of basic uh, biota and the health of the uh, the bay populations?
2: right so you know you can't be maryland or the chesapeake without thinking about blue crabs it's kind of our iconic species uh much like salmon in the pacific northwest that we eat more of them here than the bay could ever produce Uh, so we bring in crabs from all over the world to make crab cakes and the crab filling for your flounders and all that kind of stuff and we reserve uh our local native crabs for uh you know the live steamer market in the middle of the summer Uh, so blue crabs are always on people's mind we just had a fairly recent uh winter uh, crab dredge survey which is how they estimate the population and it's up uh, about 60 percent from previous years so we're feeling really good about the blue crabs um uh, to balance that out the uh, striped bass which i mentioned before are kind of at a a a fairly uh, low point in the last five years uh, years ago, about 20 years ago, there was a moratorium uh, for five years that was placed on the the uh, striped bass population to try to bring it back. It recovered very nicely from that. And now uh, there's some other effects, whether it be overfishing effects, uh, mortality from being caught and released. Uh, some climate effects are affecting the whole population. Uh, hard to tell, but there's uh, you know those two indicators I think are 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 what we look at. There's other things like uh, Menhaden, which are really important in the food web. Um, you know we look at bay grasses, uh, which are really important indicator of how clear the water is getting, and that's very uh, connected to those water quality uh, nutrients I mentioned before. So uh, a couple different parameters, mostly on the upswing. Some concern about um, uh, the uh, straight bass. And then of course we have the harvest issues. Uh, oysters are over harvested in about half of Maryland's waters, uh, based on a stock assessment that we, uh, conducted recently. So lots more work to do in getting, uh, some of our fisheries become sustainable to increase aquaculture as a fraction of the seafood market. Um, and then just do some more restoration, of some of those species in their habitats.
1: You know, that's a trend we're seeing all over the place that, uh, managing these fisheries is a challenge especially in changing climate uh in a changing climate and you you touched on that that you've seen some shifts with regard to the uh the striped bass uh could you elaborate on that a little bit how how is climate change impacting the chesapeake bay
2: right so warmer water holds less oxygen than cooler water uh so if you have a dissolved oxygen problem because of nutrient loading that's going to be um, worse as you have warmer water remember i also mentioned that the warm water that goes to this that's uh, collected at the surface uh, creates a stressful situation for things like striped bass so those are the species that are going to be most affected by that that squeeze between the low dissolved oxygen on the bottom and the high temperatures on the top uh, we're also seeing that the uh, climate change the what they call the downscaled impacts to the northeastern united states from all the big like uh, international climate change models models uh, are showing uh, increasing intensity of rainfall events. Uh, And we certainly saw that in 2018. We had almost double uh, the rainfall we would normally have in that time period. It uh, has the um, effect of depressing the salinities. The amount of salt dissolved in the water goes way down when you have that much freshwater runoff. That affects things like oysters in uh, their reproduction. We had almost no oyster reproduction in 2018. Um, it affects, uh, you know, these dissolved oxygen uh, criteria can go up and down on a, a yearly basis based on how much rainfall. And then think about the stormwater issue with all that impervious surface across the watershed. Um, you have uh, very intense summer rains falling onto hot asphalt and it Uh, heats the water up and again you have some of these localized dissolved oxygen uh, problem areas because you have hot water going into local watersheds. They're almost like microcosms of the whole bay. And so you have one of the big tributaries like uh, the Severn River here in Annapolis or the Patapsco River up in Baltimore um, exhibiting these low dissolved oxygen hotspots um, in, the, in the middle of the summer, which can kind of truncate um, the amount of space that's available for, for critters to migrate. And there's not as much place for them to hide out from that
1: yeah you know it's 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 funny you say that doug, but as you're reminding you're reminding me of uh, uh, over the past twelve months, I saw some viral footage on on social media of uh, some major floods out in Maryland uh, that washed away like a car dealership and you're right, all of that water is landing on uh, hot asphalt and that would I guess have an impact on Uh, the water chemistry of the watershed, which is something that I had never thought about.
2: Right, imagine when we would have had a mostly forested watershed and that water could have soaked in and been cooled and cleaned on its way to the groundwater and then eventually out into the streams and into the bay now it comes running off hot and dirty and fast and so a place like baltimore city which uh, ranges in elevation from 370 feet on its northwest corner down to sea level uh, at the baltimore inner harbor you're delivering a lot of nutrients and heat and sediment to the bay in minutes uh, from a a summer rain
0: doug it's hard not to to listen to the descriptions that you've provided, I'm glad you've added in that the assessment is it's improving, but it sounds discouraging. I mean, the challenges seem substantial. I, I want to throw you a, an odd question, but uh, if you had a magic wand, what th- one or two, three things would you do to make this situation better?
2: Well, it is improving mostly because people are uh, taking that that uh, top down EPA assessment. They're looking at the science. They're Passing bills and budgets by the billions of dollars within each state to do these reductions. And and some of those reductions, the most cost effective ones, are things like planting trees. Uh, Forested buffers along farm fields are huge in their ability to uh, reduce the pollution coming off those farm fields. Done a lot with uh, agricultural cost share practices like cover crops. Um, Some states. Provide big cost-share incentives for them. Others don't, but there's a lot of information going out there about kind of the bottom-line improvements for farms that incorporate some of these uh, best management practices that improve soil health and to uh, capture um, rainfall before it would get to the shoreline. Uh, we're doing a lot with uh, animal manure management systems. I think there's several hundred best management practices uh, that now are in a manual uh, or several manuals uh, for each sector and. They and then each one of those has a load reduction efficiency how much nitrogen phosphorus and sediment that best management practice has per linear foot of stream or per uh, acre of farmland uh, and so we're able to count up those practices run them through a very sophisticated water quality model that that takes a look at the entire uh, 64,000 square mile watershed, any of those changes to land use and any of those additions of best management practices are then run through the model and they spit out um, a load reduction that that we can then uh, test with water quality uh, right. monitoring throughout the system. So, so the- it's a... Pretty sophisticated program that is put, put together, but I'd say your cheapest things to do are plant trees, uh, and then the cheapest after that is plant more trees. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's the thing that um, uh, has the biggest bang for the buck, and I think uh, we're we're following that by in Pennsylvania we just started a, uh, a challenge to plant uh, 10 million trees across the Pennsylvania parts of the watershed. Huh. And, well on our way to doing that in the next five years. So
0: here here you are, a marine scientist working in the Chesapeake Bay system. And the number one uh, recommendation, of course, is to go to the upland and figure out what the hell's going on up there and to try to improve the situation. And I, it makes a lot of sense. But I think for the listeners out there, uh, managing a system as complex as the Chesapeake Bay is really ultimately uh an exercise in trying to figure out what the hell is coming into the system, which is coming off of the upland, which is about all of the rainfall in right. the in the river systems and the and, and look, you've mentioned both the urban component of stormwater runoff. You've talked about the agricultural runoff uh, component of that. Um, Give us a sense of the balance between those two. What What do you think is uh, What does the science tell us in terms of the con- con- contributions to the problem? How much of it is it attributable to urban areas? How much of it is attributable to rural agricultural practices? Is Is, is that a number you You can provide or a sense of that?
2: Um, I often have pie charts like that in front of me. I don't right now. I can tell you that there's uh, because of the land use and agriculture across the watershed, it's still the largest um, uh, contributor in in gross uh, pounds of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment, Uh, but the per acre um, contribution from that land use is much lower than it is from urban stormwater. Urban stormwater could probably put 15 pounds of nitrogen uh, per acre into the bay and uh, a well-managed farm, maybe four or five pounds per acre. Okay. So it does matter um, how much uh, of the land use is in different land uh, land cover types uh, between agriculture and and uh, urban. But I think the urban sector, uh, especially in Maryland, is so close to the bay. Um, it is the I ninety five corridor, and it's only minutes before that polluted runoff is going to get into. Um, the tidal waters and so in okay. maryland uh we've had loss of tree cover and increases of impervious surface even during this whole uh cleanup effort and the way maryland has chosen to uh, reach its goals is through upgrades to wastewater treatment plants okay. um, back in the very beginning of the cleanup plan they uh passed a uh, Bay Restoration Fund uh, in Maryland that's a uh, f- uh, for better lack of a better term called a flush tax when it was originally uh, proposed and it's a fee, a flat fee it goes on everybody's water bill in the We well, talk Bay about of Maryland
0: big government. It's huh? used
2: for wastewater treatment upgrades, for septic connections to sewer, uh, for some of these cover crop programs uh, on agriculture. It's It generates several billion dollars a year and it's being put into uh, the most cost effective practices and wastewater treatment seem to be the one uh, that we got the biggest bang for the buck as we get closer to this 2025 target we're going to have to diversify that portfolio and pay for some different stuff but having dedicated funding at the state level is is crucial and we're trying to push that uh for pennsylvania and new york and other places where we're lagging behind wow
0: let's talk about the politics a little bit and i've been reading about the chesapeake bay system uh, in preparation to, to talking with you uh what I'm hearing and what I'm reading about says that there is a per- particularly intense discussion going on about the uh, the cost-benefit results of uh, the investment to date, the billions of dollars in upland land management practices, uh, reform, other water quality improvement efforts. Uh, and um, is the public, I mean, and the, and the Bay is in an improving condition, but Uh, What I've read, Doug, is folks are saying, you know what, we've put billions into this damn thing for at least a decade, and we're just not seeing the results. Is that a fair characterization of the argument that's occurring? And what do you think about uh, that assertion, if that's what's going on?
2: No, I don't think it's fair at all. And and again, it goes back to the science of this. It didn't didn't get dirty all of a sudden. It got dirty over 150 years of – uh, land use changes, growth, deforestation, building impervious surfaces, uh, poor wastewater treatment. All that took a long time, and the Bay took it and took it and took it until it couldn't anymore. We reached the threshold, and the system collapsed. The system stayed collapsed for probably a couple decades. And as we're reducing yeah. nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment in real pounds across this huge watershed, we are also not seeing the water quality bounce back in a linear fashion. It stays in a degraded condition until you finally get to a threshold below which the system starts to respond. One of the first things we see as we get to that threshold is the phytoplankton blooms uh, shorten in time and are not as severe. And what will happen is more light can get through that green, cloudy water to the the sediments below, sand and the mud, and it allows things like benthic diatoms to grow, and then eventually the submerged aquatic vegetation, which the seed source is still here for, yeah. uh, to be able to, to respond. And there's been a lot of places around the country where they try to transplant yeah. uh, submerged aquatic vegetation, these seagrasses, and it doesn't really ever take. What we've been able to do is get 10, 20, 30,000 acres of seagrasses back just by reducing the nutrient loads, allowing the water to get clearer, and then allowing those seagrass beds to reoccupy the places where they always were before. So we're seeing those thresholds starting to be reached, and we're seeing um, a nonlinear response to the recovery, and I think we're now uh, taking a hard look at those commitments we have to make uh, in what we call the Phase 3 Watershed Implementation Plan that all the states are putting forward as we speak. Uh, to be able to get that last increment of load reduction that the science is telling us is going to put the system back into balance. And I feel like, um, yes, there's a lot of money been spent, um, but it's almost like you had to spend that much money to reverse the trend of what was happening for so long, where uh, development just had these externalities of pollution of the bay, and we didn't pay attention to that. In 1972, we passed the Clean Water Act, and we've been figuring out ever since how to bring those – those waters back into fishable and swimmable condition and it's it's not an easy or quick or a cheap thing to do but it is working and I think every dollar has been worth it and we're going to have to do that into the future for a while but I think um, it has taught us a better way to uh, live with the landscape and to improve water quality at every level because if you can clean up your water in upstate New York and your local stream and you can fish and swim in that then the bay will be fine
0: Right. It's truly a we're all in this together kind of idea uh, for that region. Um, And that is true in so many environmental health issues is that uh, tiny incremental things that we all do contribute to add up to big problems. And it takes it takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort and a lot of time to help these systems come back. And when you think about the Clean Water Act 1972, good Lord, that's, that's what, 40 years, right? Something 40, right. less than 50 years. I mean, when you think about the development of the Northeast and and uh, first arrival, you know, of course, Plymouth Rock, 1604, we've been around for a while. This base system, as you said, has uh, has been critical to the country's early economy was uh, in Chesapeake we've been using this bay for 500 years and by golly it's worth 50 years worth of work and you can't expect it to to change overnight and i um, right. it, uh, is the public in the political process capable of that kind of uh, patience what are you seeing in the let's talk about the human beings who make these decisions what's the what's the vibe in the public out there for uh, continued focus on the on chesapeake bay
2: Uh, it's it's constant um one of the things we use to to gauge that is that i think three years in a row uh the Trump administration had zeroed out the budget for the Chesapeake Bay program and constituents from across the watershed impressed upon their elected leaders to replace that budget. And in the last year, uh, we've had even more grassroots support to increase the level of federal funding that's going to the Chesapeake Bay cleanup. So I think if you were to use the um, public participation and the representative form of government and their level of commitment to the bay cleanup as the the, the marker for this, as the measure for this, I think there's still an appetite um, for uh, getting the job done. And I think as we are seeing improvement, that actually does um, compel people to do just a little bit more because they can see the results, uh, they see the fisheries rebounding, they see the water getting clearer, uh, they see fewer uh, fish kills, all that kind of stuff. I I think the more difficult challenge is looking when you're further away from the bay proper and you don't see those uh, immediate effects, then we have to change the conversation a little bit more to local water quality and talk about the local streams um, and not make it just uh, here's this big expensive regulation but uh, wouldn't you like to be able to have your kids swim in that local stream again like they used to or you used to maybe uh, uh, decades ago and so that that argument seems to work better to localize it across the watershed wherever we are Uh, we're also seeing that we get the best bang for when we have best management practices that have ancillary benefits something that might be uh, better bottom line for the farmer uh, in the way it uh, restores soil health and they get a better yield. Um, We see uh, things like if uh, a local government that's planting a bunch of trees, uh, and those trees then reduce the temperature of uh, the area, have less heat stress, heat stroke, things like that. Um, there's other other ways to measure um, the investments other than just that nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment through the model um, that have a more local uh, impact and a local benefit. And I think folks are starting to see those co-benefits um, and and use that in the political discussion to make sure we keep the, 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 job going.
1: Doug, I think that's a great point. And, uh, you know, I, I used to live in Washington, DC. I went to college there and, you know, it was kind of a joke not to swim in the, in the Potomac. You wouldn't want to go in there. You might get a rash, uh, the water, you know, it's polluted. You sure as heck don't want to be eating the fish that are caught out there, even though a lot of people were fishing, Uh, And I remember I would just go anyway. Uh, I had a little spot off the key bridge where I would uh, go swimming and uh, really realized, I mean, I thought the, I thought that the reports were greatly, I mean, just in the, in the community, I'm not, these are not educated environmental people. This is just what people's thoughts of the watershed were that it was kind of a dirty system. And uh, I actually found it to be uh, a lovely place to swim. And, and then I uh, later on, I was I was working out of college, and uh, I went on a trip with some friends up to Maryland, and we went uh, crabbing, or excuse me, went oystering with Captain Murphy on an old skipjack. Uh, and uh, he was a tremendous advocate. And I'll tell you, for people who live in D.C. Uh, in the summertime, when the weather's nice, going out to Maryland, going out to Annapolis, uh, treating yourself to a little weekend out there is a great way to recreate and get out to the country and the bay is absolutely a fundamental feature in the in the culture of maryland you were talking about you can't really even think about the state of maryland without thinking about a a blue crab uh so I do think that there is a uh, growing, and this is kind of where I'm going with with this, is that what I saw when I was out there is is as a D.C. guy, as a guy living in the city going out to recreate, is that, wow, I didn't even know what was going on from a conservation perspective on the blue crab and on the oysters. Captain Murphy educated me on a sunset cruise when I was drinking white wine, cruising around the Chesapeake and a really beautiful thing. But I was learning about the conservation effort, which was really cool and i have to imagine that that is a growing trend that increasingly people are utilizing the resource as a place of recreation and more ecotourism as opposed to extraction and you know fishing
2: yeah we i was just uh on a a tour of the baltimore harbor with uh, two architects and uh, the three of us passed the microphone around and did a harbor tour for 75 Uh, architects and residents that are kind of looking at this new connection of Baltimore to its harbor. For the longest time, it was where they dumped their raw sewage and their industrial waste. Um, And now it is the highest dollar real estate in the city. Their their restaurants, their other um, really important redevelopment ideas are all centered around the harbor. And I think um, they're excited about the fact that not only can they... Um, make a lot of money off of waterfront real estate, but they're connecting people to it. Uh, There's mandatory uh, requirements that each new development along the harbor uh, create a public... space for walking and and accessing the water we're using wire cages and we're using the docks in baltimore harbor to raise baby oysters uh we have thousands of cages the whole way around the harbor uh including you know folks from domino sugar and under armor and all the other uh big waterfront businesses uh to work with their their um Employees and with volunteers in the community uh, to raise baby oysters and to put them out onto uh, Fort Carroll, which is an oyster reef that's right underneath the uh, uh, Francis Scott Key Bridge. So there's wow. this whole um, reconnect the Key Bridge. That's where I go swimming. <laughs> bay that I think uh, people have gotten savvy to now, and it's become a uh, part of of modern Washington, D.C., Baltimore, you know, even Richmond, uh, Virginia and the Virginia part of the watershed, certainly in Norfolk. Lots of folks are reconnecting with the water, seeing it as an asset, um, caring about it, having more of a connection to it. One of the things our education program has been doing for years, um, not only is exposing a lot of students year after year, I think we have 30,000 students go through our program every year, um, but we actually uh, passed a um, environmental literacy requirement for graduation in maryland and that basically means that you will be literate about the environment before you graduate you will have so many experiences um, that connect you to nature and um whether it be through Chesapeake Bay Foundation's field experiences or other smaller groups or something you can do on your campus. Um, there's been a, a statewide concerted effort to connect people with the resource better um, and to realize, yeah, there's, there's money to be made from a clean environment. We've even done some environmental economics uh, reports that show uh, increased uh, property values just from living near um, a, a body of water that has improved water quality, especially if it was uh, polluted in the past. And so we're, we're seeing the economic, the social, the environmental kind of come together under the same measuring stick. And people are seeing there, there there doesn't need to be this dichotomy of you can only grow the economy if you pollute the environment. It's it's that's actually just the opposite. You can only have a sustainable economy if you. Uh, take care of and improve, restore uh, your environment, and I think that ethic is is taking hold.
0: Good, uh, you watershed. know, and it is an ethic, and I think it's it's not just an ethic; it's a true fact. I think it's been demonstrated, uh, but getting the public to kind of embrace the notion of environmental health means economic health is uh, a challenge for advocacy, advocacy or organizations all around the American shoreline. And it sounds like you guys are making great progress. Um, Let me ask you, I I, I have to ask you about Governor Larry Hogan's recent veto. Uh, And you'll have to, let's fill our readers in on what's happening in Maryland. Uh, Governor Hogan is the, uh, the, obviously the governor of Maryland. There's been an effort, and I take this as a sign of success, Doug, that the oyster sanctuaries that the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and the natural resource agencies have have been successful in reestablishing. Um, in the Chesapeake Bay have caught the attention of the uh, of the watermen and the oyster guys and they want to go out and harvest in these uh, oyster sanctuaries that you guys have spent some decades uh, trying to reestablish. Can you talk about about the oyster recovery process, the sanctuary areas and uh, maybe introduce our audience to the discussion recently that's been going on in the Maryland legislature.
2: Sure. Um, So it's it's a longer story than just this uh, legislative session. This legislative session brought to a head things that were kind of uh, on the move a few years ago. Um, I did mention that we have a stock assessment that shows overfishing in about half of Maryland's uh, open waters for for oyster harvesting, harvesting the wild harvest. That stock assessment only took place because Chesapeake Bay Foundation forced it through legislation a few years ago. Uh, The state of Maryland was just fine, not knowing what the population of oysters was, yet uh, uh, allocating an annual quota for oyster harvest every year. Um, We found that to be an untenable position. Um, We knew that uh, there was going to be uh, increasing desire by the harvesting community to get into the sanctuaries because it was where we had clear evidence of some of the the densest, uh, most highly productive reefs. Mm. And there's been a lot of misinformation about um, the cost per acre of restoration, and um, it's very hard for people who have had, the only connection with the oyster as a species has been as a seafood product. Um, It's really hard for folks to understand the idea of a three-dimensional reef structure that might support uh, 300 other species in the Bay that are reef-associated, that each Adult oyster can filter anywhere from 30 to 50 gallons of water per day, uh, removing the the phytoplankton from it and clearing the water. So a lot of those ecosystem services is why we did the restoration projects. Uh, we're working with NOAA, with the Corps of Engineers, um, with other nonprofits throughout the state All right. uh, to hey, do oyster hey, restoration within these targeted tributaries. Okay. Basically, the whole idea is, you know, for years we did kind of Johnny Oyster Seed, where he put a few oysters here and a few oysters there, um, but they would be harvested just as quickly. And we had 50 sanctuaries that were identified uh, across the, the state, but five of those were going to be uh, designated for very intensive um hundreds of acres of restoration. So those have been uh, successful. We're still, uh, we are still have two more of those restoration uh, tributaries to finish in Maryland. There's also five of them in Virginia. Um, I think they have two of their five uh, fully restored now. So this is a decadal um, restoration effort, um, and it would be wiped out in a single oyster season if you were to gain access well, uh, to those sanctuaries for harvest and so the the watermen are getting rightfully nervous Uh, i think if they were to if i was to step back and look at this it's it's not their fault the state allowed over harvest for many decades um the state allowed too many licenses to be uh issued so that when you do have a good reproductive year each uh waterman would go out and uh, activate their license even if they haven't used it for 10 years so a lot of that kind of uh, uh created a um a boom-and-bust cycle for the oyster population. And Hmm. the only thing that was immune from it are the sanctuaries, especially those ones that are under intense uh, restoration. So it's very hard for them to see a big, fat oyster reef uh, that they can't get into. Uh, Their history has been one of open wild harvest on public grounds, uh, and they consider uh, the whole existence of oyster sanctuaries as a take uh, from them, and wow. so it's been uh, talking past each other in the politics for a number of years. It's still very um, uh, controversial uh, from the standpoint of uh, you see a, a livelihood of a iconic um, Maryland uh, business that's at risk of extinction um, based on their own overharvest and the overharvest that was allowed by the state. And uh, the big mean old environmentalists not letting them in uh, to yeah. harvest out the last of the oysters that we spent millions of state and federal dollars to restore.
0: You know, classic classic.
2: So coming at the issue from a completely different um, understanding that utilitarian, every oyster must be harvested and sold versus um, no, oysters' best use is to be left in the bay to filter water and to create habitat for other species. So the governor vetoed um, a piece of legislation uh, toward the end of the legislative session, which was to kind of lock in the boundaries of those five restoration tributaries to make sure that um, the Department of Natural Resources did not uh, allow access to especially those final two uh, tributaries that were in the process of being restored. Um, and uh, we, the, uh, we impressed upon the, the legislature to override that veto, and it was overridden, and so those sanctuaries are kind of now locked in. Um, there won't be any harvest on them. Uh, part two of the legislation is still undecided. The governor has; uh, it's sitting on his desk for uh, either potential signature or veto, and that's to set a new uh, oyster harvest management plan going forward, um, where we've uh, favored a uh, kind of a, a system where there would be broad stakeholder input. We would uh, make a major tenant of the. Oyster management plan to not overfish. Uh, there's never been any policy in the state that you know, prevents overfishing. Uh, so it's kind of a big uh, turning point in how we manage the oyster resource. There's been at least a decade or more uh, of uh, investment in aquaculture, and many of the watermen have uh, turned over to aquaculture. Um, but it's kind of like turning a hunter-gatherer into a farmer. They um, yeah, resist it socially. Mm-hmm. Um, some of have embraced it. Some are doing. Some of both, uh, both wild harvest and and aquaculture. So um, we're, we're we're still seeing how that's all going to pan out and we're trying to get this broader view of of, uh, uh, long-term sustainable oyster harvest in place but there's a lot of local politics to be played um, in an issue like this uh, the best Way I can determine it is uh, one of the local legislature le- legislators from the eastern shore calls it the war on the shore, mm. uh, and that uh, Chesapeake Bay Foundation has single-handedly, um, you know, dashed a- an industry that's been vibrant in the Chesapeake Bay for 200 years, and it was hyperbole abound. Yeah, it's in some of these Political statements.
0: But I mean, it's baloney, I and feel I feel
2: like the general public. Ninety-nine point nine percent of them who are not watermen uh, are behind us in this uh, endeavor.
0: Well, it is baloney, and I and I appreciate the political skill and and that kind of rhetoric. I mean, it does sort of capture the notion of for, for folks who want to believe that way, but it's simply not factually accurate. Um, in these oyster sanctuary areas that you uh, guys have worked on and uh, in partnership with uh, many, as you've mentioned. Um, how many acres have of of successful reef restoration? have you guys managed to pull off and, uh, as a percentage of the total that you want to get to, uh, what's the target in terms of restored oysters that are in sanctuary protection status?
2: Right. It's, it's not a, an acreage target. It's, it's more of a, for those areas, the entire tributary is, is, uh, protected. The restored area is a number of reefs within that entire sanctuary area. And so we will restore all of the available hard bottom that's within that. So let me just okay. as an example, Harris Creek, which is one of the targeted tri- one of the five targeted tributaries. It's been 135 acres of reef restoration within a several thousand acre um, okay. uh, reserve. The idea is those are supposed to stay unharvested so that they can grow up, they can reproduce, they can gain uh, three-dimensional structure, which is very important from the habitat standpoint, Right, and that those would then begin to reproduce and to export their larvae out into the wild fishery area where they would, again, uh, be able to contribute to the overall population. So it's not all about an acreage goal. It's mm. about um, where... And how much of an area serve all of those restoration functions, the the structure, the habitat, the water quality, the larval export, all of those things. So as we look at those next two tributaries, there's so much available hard bottom that we could use uh, to do this. We set a goal of anywhere from 50 to 100 percent of that hard bottom to be restored in living oyster uh, veneer. We call it a veneer because we're basically starting with uh, rocks being put onto otherwise hard bottom that's been scraped bare by by harvest um, to get those new oysters off the bottom so they don't get sedimented over with uh, just sediment um, resuspension. Then we're placing microscopic spat on shell. These are just baby oysters that were spawned 10 or 15 days ago. Uh, they fix to oyster shells. We spread those oyster shells in a thin layer over those rock substrates, and then they begin to grow vertically from that point, wow. kind of competing with each other for space. Sure. So They're used to the that. The oyster restoration plan does not set specific acreage goals. It sets a percentage of acreage of each of the separate sanctuaries Sounds so good. so that they would have these ecological functions. Sorry, right. that's a long answer to no, a pretty no, simple that's question.
0: A, but, no, but, um, it's if, not a simple The
2: uh, oyster problem. management plan that we're Operating under is about 300 pages, and it's got a lot of different uh, criteria to meet. Okay, um, no, don't go through those. The oysters, how many need to survive <laughs> after three years? Uh, so we may reseed areas in order to bring them up to that those criteria. Right. Um, there's a lot of monitoring that goes on after the fact. Well, let me um, to see let if me. they're meeting those criteria, and okay. then we adaptively manage the thing by saying, okay, well, we've done three of these; the next two. Um, are gonna either have to pick up the slack for what we weren't able to achieve in one of the other ones, or you know we don't have to do as much restoration in this next one because uh, the others are, are functioning.
0: It sounds like it's a big complex problem. It sounds like you're making solid headway uh, sufficient to attract the attention of the oystermen. And I think that's a credit to the work that you've done. Uh, but, uh, and good for the Maryland legislature to override the veto of the governor, uh, that, as yeah. you said, the bill would have permanently, se- well, de- does permanently set aside these restoration areas from harvest. The governor vetoed that, uh, ran on, as I understand it in his election, uh, a promise, to try to open up these oyster areas that was part of his campaign strategy and good for the Maryland legislature for having the wherewithal to protect these areas. I mean, there's no doubt that the oyster structure is inherently uh, necessary for the improvement of the base system from water quality to critters and all across the board. But let me ask you this. And and you mentioned something you said caught my attention uh, when you said that the uh, this boom and bust cycle of oyster harvesting in the base system and that folks are will lay low for a few years when there's nothing, uh, no oysters to get. And then 10 years later, they'll activate their permits and get out there and and harvest the hell out of it. Um, it sounds like there is an over abundance of harvest capacity uh, that the number of oyster uh, leases or, or more licenses that exist out there uh Maybe too many. Uh, Is there any discussion of a more limited uh, entry fishery or a buyback of oyster uh, harvest rights?
2: Yeah, those are exactly what we're asking for through this um, uh, oyster management plan uh, legislation. Uh, And we've made comments on the Department of Natural Resources draft asking for that very thing. Um, They're resistant to do it. I'm not sure Sure. exactly why we've never heard really good explanations from them other than the watermen don't like that idea. Um, And so I don't think that's an awesome way to do policy, uh, especially when your agency is uh, mandated to protect the resource, Mm. um, is to do what the watermen want to do and don't do what the watermen don't want to do.
0: I I think there's just
2: been a very long history of managing the resource in that way. And it's a fairly recent phenomenon that the majority – it's good to see that representative democracy still works because the majority of the people in the state want to see oyster populations restored, not just as seafood, but they want to see them restored as habitat and as water quality filters. And so that message has gotten through. Um, and the politics are kind of stacked against the governor in this regard and against the watermen. Uh, um, it's not a war on the watermen. It's a war on bad management. And it's going to hurt, unfortunately, to get the management back into um, a sustainable criteria, certainly license buybacks and um Effort reductions are on the table um, for consideration and we'll see how much political will there is to do that. But it's in the administrative realm that those changes will happen that's completely within uh, the governor's and the Department of Natural Resources purview legislation really won't be able to weigh in on that kind of
0: stuff. Man. Well, Doug Meyer, senior marine scientist with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation Annapolis office. Doug, good luck in the continued work with the foundation um, in trying to balance these complex interests. Uh, you're not alone in those uh, those discussions, as you know, around the United States. I know you've had some spent some time in the Puget Sound area. Uh, coastal resource management balance is a very tricky business, and it takes great pros like yourself to dive in and and try to help figure it out. Uh, any parting thoughts for our audience, Doug?
2: Well, I learned a lot of it from you, Peter, uh, back at the General Land Office many years ago.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's too kind, but thank you. <laughs> I know, we did work. The audience, Doug and I worked together at the Texas General Land Office for six years together in the mid-90s, and, uh, and uh, we were fighting a lot of battles then, Doug, as I recall.
2: It's been a good career. I've been enjoying uh, the challenges of it. It's never a dull moment, and uh, job security.
0: So, for those folks who want to learn more about what you do and about the foundation, how do they how do they get in touch?
2: Yeah, I would uh, go to our website www.chesapeakebay.org or cbf.org. Either one will work, and uh, just uh, float around in there and see what you can learn. Uh, if you want to contact me directly, it's dmyers at cbf.org.
0: Thank you very much, Doug Myers, Senior Marine Scientist, Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Thanks for taking us on a tour around the bay. Thanks,
2: Doug.